0: Episode 112 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. And there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com and follow me on Instagram at virtual couch, Facebook, Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, or go to TonyOverbay.com and sign up there to get more information on upcoming exciting news, projects, programs, all that good sort of thing. So let's get right to the episode today. I love a good podcast. And recently on a drive back from Las Vegas, while my family slept, we like to leave at the very early hours of the morning. Uh, I listened to a couple of them that I just kind of binged on. I haven't done that in a little while. One of them was called "The Dropout." It's the story of Elizabeth Holmes and her company Theranos. That was uh, just uh, utterly fascinating. If you haven't heard about that, it's a pretty short one. I think there's about five or six episodes. But then one that I'm really hooked on right now is called "Cold," and uh, this is from Wondery. It's a it's from uh, KSL, which is out of Utah, and it's the story of the disappearance of Susan Powell, which was I think back in 2009. But uh, cold in particular is just beyond fascinating, um, and, and what I kind of find in common with the dropout and cold are both just, and of course I cannot diagnose people that I've never met with, but uh, just a lot of these components of gaslighting and components of narcissism. And I know there's a whole lot of people throwing out the word um, narcissism narcissist, narcissistic personality disorder, traits of narcissism, that sort of thing all over the place and and to be completely honest in my line of work, um, in particular the the area of the population that I tend to focus on, I do work with a lot of people where there is some narcissistic narcissistic tendencies, especially in the couple 's relationships that i uh, the couple 's work that I do. but I just found these things just so so fascinating because you have in my personal opinion. Um, two pretty large narcissists at play, especially in Cold. Um, that's the one that really got me thinking about this podcast today. Where uh, this Susan Powell, and her husband Josh, who ended up uh, taking his own lives and the lives of his two small children in 2012, but which is tragic, and I don't want to put anything um, away from that. That that part is just I, I can't even imagine. And his father Steve, who I looked up and he had died a year or so ago. I believe after being released from prison, where he'd been serving a sentence for a conviction for voyeurism and possession of child pornography. But in the podcast, there are just hours and hours and hours of recordings of Josh and even recordings of his father Steve. It is so, it is so bizarre, kind of chilling, fascinating. You name it, um, to just kind of hear Josh and Steve in particular. And just their versions of reality, and even when they were talking to police or when they're talking to the media. But so if you're into true prime, if you're into true crime podcasts, I do highly recommend it. But uh, but again, what was interesting for the work that I get to do is you you basically got to listen to gaslighting just over and over again. And and here's how what I'm not even sure how to describe. And uh, and I realize in saying what I'm about to say, it'll sound almost like I'm saying you know, bring me all your people, and I will tell you if they are crazy or not because I am the one. Uh, Who can tell if someone is crazy or not is if I have a divining rod or if I feel like I have all the answers. And what if maybe I'm the crazy one to begin with? Then that's a pretty bad gauge to start from. But, uh, I, I had a conversation actually when I was in Vegas with um, one of my daughters who's working on a project for school, uh, just talking about psychological competency and if people can be held for trial or if people get off for the insanity d- d- plea, that sort of thing. So we were talking about that and, and we were talking about the concept of where people will get a psychological evaluation and even someone can go into the courtroom and they can present as quote crazy. They can bark, they can yell, they can turn away from their chair, but then they will still be held um Um, psychologically competent for a trial. And and so we were talking about just this concept of especially the psychological evaluators. And I'm trying to reach out and uh, find someone who does criminal um, psychological evaluations to come on the podcast. I think that would be fascinating because here's the part where I think I have an idea of maybe how this works. And that is the concept of where when someone has done just years and years of research, And they have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hours of sitting in front of people with true disorders, um, uh, personality disorders or psychotic uh, disorders, you name it, that they really do kind of have – they start to get a feel for what they're looking for. And so there can be someone that is legitimately – and I'm just going to use the term loosely – crazy. And there can be someone that is, for the most part, seems fairly normal. But then we'll remember to, oh, oh, wait, I got to I got to act really crazy right now to show this psychologist that I'm I'm not competent for trial. So here's like a really silly example, but that makes sense of something that I see in couples therapy. So I can have couples come in 20 couples, 25 couples a week, and I can have 80 or 90 percent of those couples when we're using this emotionally focused therapy, this EFT technique, where it is very powerful and it kind of just really uh, brings couples closer together. Um, An example fairly recently was they it's starting to be. Uh, better weather in california there's still a bunch of rain but um but the temperatures aren't too cold and so there was talk where uh, the wife uh, a wife that i was working with recently just said she just wants to go with her husband and and just uh, let the top down on the car and just go and the the husband who is very well versed in eft now because you could tell that he wanted to he looked almost like he wanted to say "What, what are you talking about like i you know i wanted to have the top down on the car forever. And so he just kind of said, "Alright, hey, tell me what you know, when do you feel like I haven't done that or when did you when do you feel that we stopped doing that?" And then she laid out a scenario of a few summers ago where um, you know, she wanted to have the top down, and he had said something about I don't know his hair or it was cold or something like that. And uh, and then they just never brought it up again. And and it was just you know it's it's unfortunate, but that's kind of more of a normal a pattern of communication. Where then once the husband heard that, he just said, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry." He's like, "I I don't necessarily remember that exact uh, time, but uh, man, if the, I, I'm so sorry that you've kind of hung on to this." Um, view that I'm—I was angry, and that I, you know, I don't want the top down on the car, and here the whole time you know, he said that I was thinking the same thing where I feel like when I've wanted to put the top down in the past that you've complained about your hair blowing around. And then she's like, Oh my gosh. So we both wanted the same thing for the last couple of years and we just haven't done it. And I know, again, that sounds like a silly example, but what a difference then when somebody says he never wants to put the top down on the car. And then uh, if the husband just immediately says, okay, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, you can put the top down too. I mean, you're an adult, you can, and it's like not seeking to understand first of, of, of kind of seeing what that example is. But the reason I bring that up in this context is, so I will hear those. Things those things kind of are the more normal. So then, when I do hear the um, the when the person turns to me, let's say someone with the bit of narcissistic personality disorder, and they turn to me and say, Are we seriously paying you right now to talk about putting a top down on the car? You know, uh, my wife just needs to realize that if she would just uh, stop, you know. Um, being mean to me, or if she would you know, I don't know, be more intimate with me or whatever, then all this would be taken care of. And it's like, okay, no, that's not the normal way that we communicate. You know, We want to understand where our partner's coming from. We the, the normal way is not to tell them what they are supposed to be doing. So I feel like that's the same thing when somebody's doing psychological competency evaluation, or when you're just listening for these gaslighting techniques of where you just hear these things that are just so not normal. And again, I hate using that word normal, but in this scenario we're gonna go with that. So in this cold podcast you do. You get to hear a whole lot of um conversations where you just hear the not normal where there's this gaslighting and and these narcissistic uh, personalities, which then got me doing a little bit more digging on narcissism. I've wanted to do some follow-up podcasts on narcissism. I know I've mentioned narcissistic personality disorder. I've been interviewed on other podcasts about narcissism, but uh, the boy, the episode I did, it was almost a year ago now on narcissism. um, is still one of the largest downloads I think that I've had on the virtual couch, which is pretty interesting. So, so I wanted to, cause not a day goes by where I'm not working with it in some way, shape or form. So I want to get to a really good article by a PhD in, uh, uh, in sociology. Her name's Kristen Milstead. And uh, she does a lot of research, her research backgrounds in gender and sexuality and sexual assault. But I love how she says uh, in her bio, writing about the dynamics of psychologically and emotionally abusive relationships. and doing so, she hopes to promote awareness and provide an evidence-based understanding of hidden abuse. Because I think that is, in, in fact, what happens a lot when people are in relationships with uh, people who struggle with NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, um, is that they are they are going through this hidden abuse. And uh, she wrote an article called Eight Types of Narcissists, including one to stay away from at all costs. And and well, actually, let's do this real quick. Let's take a step back. Before we get into this um, article, let me just go over the Diagnostic uh, and Statistical Manual for men- Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, and that is what we um, professionals use. For diagnosis, so let's talk about uh, what what the DSM five guidelines are for narcissistic personality disorder. And actually, before that, um, this is kind of fun. Let's uh, let's talk about personality disorders in general. So, okay, I swear to you, this is the last and before that. But before we even get to personality disorders, and I've just got so many things down here on my notes. Um, but uh, before we get to personality disorders, it's kind of important to know again. In in psychoanalysis, we've got these two terms. One's called ego syntonic. And one is called ego dystonic. So so just bear with me for a second. Ego sy- syntonic refers to the behaviors, um, values, and feelings that are in harmony with or acceptable to the needs or goals of the ego. Or they're consistent with one's ideal self-image. The reason why that's important is when someone has a personality disorder, it's important to note that that what they're going through, their experiences in life are... Uh, typically in harmony with or acceptable to the needs or goals of their ego, or consistent with their self-image. Meaning, when something's egocentric, it means that the person, it, what they're what they're experiencing, this personality disorder. Um, is core to their central being of who they are. They feel like this is acceptable and it meets the needs of their ego or it's consistent with their own self-image. So this is that part that's so hard to wrap our heads around where someone struggling with a personality disorder is just doing them. They're just living their life. And so they don't understand why people just don't, you know, admit that they are amazing or just do the things that they want them to do because if in their view, if people just did this, everyone would just be so much better off. So ego dystonic is the opposite. So it's referring to thoughts and behaviors or dreams or compulsions or desires, that sort of thing. That are in conflict or dissonant with the needs and goals of the ego, or in conflict with their their ideal self-image. So ego dystonic things are things like depression, anxiety, OCD. So it's things that go against the person that the who we want to be. And so they're things that we don't want and things that we have awareness of and things that we are going to work on. So so take that now and go forward. With, now we're talking about personality disorders. So personality disorders are a class of mental disorders and they're they're characterized By enduring maladaptive patterns of behavior or cognition or inner experiences and these these um, maladaptive patterns of behavior go across all kinds of contexts and they deviate from those that are typically accepted by the individual individual's culture so you know it's not okay to continually tell everyone around you that they are complete lunatics and wrong and if everybody would just do the things that they said that it would be okay or or it is considered a maladaptive pattern of behavior to not answer questions in a in an investigation for a murder and i think that's the part where i go back to that cold podcast where You know, you have somebody who really feels remorseful or you have someone who feels like, oh, my gosh, I want her my 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 wife found. I mean, that's the first and foremost thing, because I know I didn't do it. Then they're going to answer questions. They're going to do whatever they can. And here these police were looking at this person that was just doing everything that they could, you know, not coming in to uh, answer questions or um, not doing not following up with the things that they say or, you know, immediately kind of going to their own self interests and not the. Oh my gosh, what happened to my wife? And I, and I think as I step back, even that's maybe what I was trying to say earlier is that, especially in an investigation like that, um, police are so used to you know, heaven forbid if something ever happened to my wife. I mean, it's I'm I'm going to be a wreck. I mean that you know I'm not going to start. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'll get I'll get back to you guys, police, and I'm going to really you know thoroughly clean out my van and start looking at how I can you know move retirement accounts around. Like that's th- those are maladaptive behaviors. So. So, there's what we're, that's kind of where personality disorders uh, start. And then, um, Personality disorders, there's three clusters. There's a cluster A, which is a paranoid uh, personality disorder, schizoid person- personality disorder, and uh, schizotypal. But cluster B are the ones that we're kind of um, working with here. Cluster B personality disorders, and they're considered dramatic. Uh, it's antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and here's our favorite, narcissistic. Just for the G Wiz file, cluster C is avoidant personality disorder, dependent obs- personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is not to be confused with um, obsessive Uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder is more when somebody is, uh, you know, considered to be very, I don't know, overly tidy and uptight and uh, very kind of anal in the things that they do. And then there's some that are not specified, depressive and haltose and passive aggressive and sadistic and self-defeating and psychopathic. So those are not specified personality disorders. All right. So in this world of cluster B personality disorders, um, cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional or unpredictable thinking or behavior or interactions with others. And that's where they bring in antisocial or borderline histrionic or or narcissistic. And uh, I'll just give the quick little overview. So antisocial personality disorder, in a general sense, that's just a pervasive disregard for the law and the rights of others. And sometimes uh, for antisocial personality disorder, you've had somebody that has had oppositional defiant disorder or ODD growing up. Um, The second one is borderline personality disorder, and I am going to have Christine Hammond on soon to talk about that one. But that's extreme black and white thinking or chronic feelings of emptiness and instability in relationships, instability in self-image, identity, and behavior disturbances often leading to self-harm and impulsivity. There's histrionic personality disorder, which is a pervasive attention-seeking behavior, including inappropriately seductive behavior, and shallow or exaggerated emotions. I always remember in the testing, when you're getting your licensing exams, they would always have an example of somebody with histrionic personality disorder, and they would be dressed scantily clad, um, coming up to you in a party or that sort of thing. But then the one that we're talking about today, narcissistic personality disorder, a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration and a lack of empathy. So it's a narcissistic personality disorder is this this cluster B personality disorder and again comprising a per- pervasive pattern of grandiosity and fantasy or behavior, a constant need for admiration and a lack of empathy. So I do think it's fascinating the signs and symptoms in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM, that's the manual that I'm talking about. Narcissistic personality disorder is defined as com- comprising a pervasive pattern of grandiosity. How many times am I going to say that? A constant need for admiration and a lack of empathy beginning in early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by the presence of at least five of the following nine criteria. This is actually what I just wanted to get to just so that you were aware. Um, five of the following nine criteria. Uh, a grandiose sense of self-importance, number one. Number two, a preoccupation with fantasies as of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Uh, that's number two. Number three, a belief that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. Uh, number four, a need for excessive admiration. Number five, a sense of entitlement. Number six, interpersonally exploitative behavior. Number seven, a lack of empathy. Number eight, envy of others or a belief that others are envious of him or her. And number nine, a demonstration of arrogant or haughty behaviors or attitudes. So, um, and this is the tough thing about uh, diagnosis is that if somebody has four of those, you know, or four and a half of those, you don't go, oh, whew, all right, don't have to worry about them. And, uh, and it's hard to because as you read those, sometimes we can almost, you know, fit someone into those, uh, those criteria. But that's when we need to start looking at the diagnostic criteria for a narcissistic personality disorder. But now back to this article. So the article uh, that I referenced before, which is by Kristen Milstead. It's called Eight Types of Narcissists, including one to stay away from at all costs. And I promised that actually the rest of the podcast will go pretty quick here. But uh, hopefully that was kind of interesting. Um, so here we go. Uh, Kristen Milstead says, narcissism has become such a frequently used word in mainstream culture that it's taken on a life of its own, which I truly believe. I mean, I, I know that I feel like sometimes I use it too much. It's used for everything ranging from a way to informally insult someone to a way of discussing the behavior of reality TV stars. The word has even been applied indiscriminately to describe entire cultural generations. And I think that's one that I hear often. And if you were listening to those diagnostic criteria and you have uh, teenagers, for example, you might be thinking, oh, my gosh, everyone's a narcissist. So um, she goes on to say, though, it may have a colloquial definition that isn't going away anytime soon. The term narcissist still has a very specific diagnostic definition in the mental health field, which is exactly what we just went through. So individuals who meet the criteria for having narcissistic personality disorder can generally be described as having a belief of superiority over others that gives them entitlement to special treatment and an obsession with grandiose fantasies of success and power. But here's what I, I love that she's throwing out here. Deep down, however, they are very vulnerable to criticism and feelings of shame and go to great lengths to protect their fragile egos. They're also self-absorbed and have lower levels of empathy for others, and this may lead them to take advantage of people in their quest for excessive attention and admiration. And, and this is that part where if you do want to uh, deep dive on some narcissism on a fun podcast called Marriage Theraoke, I think it was episode 17, uh, Celeste Davis brought me on to talk about narcissistic being in a relationship with a narcissist. And before we got to that part of the interview, they did a really funny thing with the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain. Um, but what was fascinating is I kind of lay out in that one that when we are little, when we're little kids, we are self-centered. That's just the way little kids work. Um, you know, the world is yours. And so that's why as little kids, we, we want what we want and we are frustrated when we don't get it and we just want our way. So over time, we're, we're, the goal is to move from self-centered to self-confident. But one of the key components of being able to move from self-centered to self-confident is our self-confident is having a kind of a, a securely attached base to work from, meaning um, two or you know one or two engaged parents that care, love, that sort of thing. And so when you have parents who maybe already have their own um, narcissistic tendencies or traits, or if they are, are maybe struggling with uh, severe depression, or if there are some attachment bonds that are not there, and, and a lot of these things, too. I, I don't want parents to hear these things and think, "Oh my gosh, I've ruined my kids." Because uh, there's this is that part that's kind of a little bit of magic. You know, we we know there's some nature, there's some nurture in there. Might be in the DNA or the genes, and then it's even in, it could be in in all kinds of things from birth order and the perception of how the child is um, viewed by parents, even if that view is not you know accurate or correct. But there are so many things that kind of go on into this feeling of maybe uh, an attachment wound or there's an, some attachment bond that has not been there. But so when someone doesn't necessarily have that springboard to go from self-centered to self-confident, they can often get stuck in that self-centered mode. And that's why when you are in a relationship or interact with a narcissist, it often feels like you're dealing with a 10-year-old because it really is their way. And Or you can get so fired up about something and then just a few minutes later they come back and like, hey, what's for dinner? You know, just like a, just like your, your 10-year-old can do. So I think that's kind of interesting too. But so um, – Krista Milstead goes on to say, narcissism exists along a spectrum, and all those diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder do not adhere neatly to this characterization. I think that's very, very key. Uh, But she said, researchers have identified three major types of narcissists, each with its own combination of traits. Each of these three categories has different methods of protecting the fragile inner core sense of self, and one of them may even have a different motivation. And With each of these three types, there are subtypes that characterize how the traits may appear to others. And these different types and subtypes are discussed by a lot of different researchers and mental health professionals, but they will often use different labels to describe the same type. In addition, sometimes researchers use the same label for two different categories of narcissism, even when it's clear that they are describing the same type or subtype. So this makes the understanding of types of narcissists very difficult to wrap your hands around. So um, her goal in this article, is, she said she wants to consolidate in one place three major types of narcissists as well as five subtypes that have been identified separately using differing terminology by different researchers and then describe how they're related to one another and that's why i felt like this was a very important article to get out there um and so i and i will have the link to the article itself so you can go read about this so the three major types of narcissists um the first one that she talks about is just known as classic narcissist also known as high functioning or exhibitionist grandiose narcissist and these are the typical Narcissists that most people think of when they hear the term narcissist. These are attention seeking narcissists who brag about their accomplishments. Um, they expect others to flatter them and they feel entitled to special treatment. They get bored when the focus of the conversation turns to anybody but themselves and uh, they rarely like to share the spotlight with others. And the irony is that they are desperate to feel important and at the same time they often already perceive themselves to be superior to most people whom they come into contact with. So there's kind of the dilemma. But I think one of the important things to note there is just that concept of where they get bored when the focus of the conversation turns to anyone but themselves. And I know sometimes when I have been talking to um, maybe people who are struggling with this classic narcissism, that you can watch. I mean, it's so funny. Again, if we go back to what is normal in therapy, if you're trying to help somebody save their marriage, and you have, you know, you sit here, hey, I've got 15 years of evidence-based data and research, and I've heard, you know, worked with four or five hundred couples, and uh, so I would love to help you with this framework. Oftentimes, the the you know, the narcissist who's looking back at me they've already tuned out. You literally watch, I mean, I've watched them almost fall asleep where their eyes are getting closed or it's almost like, you know, can you hurry up and get through your stuff so that I can now, again, try to let you know how bad she is and can we both now just tell her that she's bad because here comes some of the gaslighting techniques. Now they bring into the, because I've been talking to a lot of people and they all agree with me of how bad she is. So you, Mr. Therapist, if you don't agree as well, quite frankly, you know, we might not come back. I mean, it's so bizarre to watch that. So that's the part, there's a classic narcissist. So here's some of the more interesting types. So um, vulnerable narcissist, also known as a fragile narcissist, a compensatory narcissist, or a closet narcissist, they still feel as though they are superior to most people they meet. However, they actually despise the spotlight. So it's kind of a a conflict, right? They often seek to attach themselves to special people instead of seeking special treatment themselves. They may seek pity or they uh, to ingratiate themselves through excessive generosity to receive the attention and admiration they need to boost their sense of self-worth. This is the part where I've had people in here before where they think, man, I think that my mom is a narcissist, you know, but, but they're like, but she's like, nice. I mean, she, you know, she tells me she wants to help and uh, she's always there for me, but then she also makes me feel bad and lets me know that I'm, you know, I'm a horrible parent or that sort of thing. And uh, so that one is often looked at as the vulnerable narcissist. So they, they, and they will also, again, they will seek pity or ingratiate themselves through excessive generosity. The seeking pity can just sound, it just continually kind of turn things back to them of how difficult things are for them. It's not a, Hey, tell me more about you. It's just, you know, Hey, you're here. Now let me just kind of tell you about how difficult things are for me and how much, you know, but, but I mean that, you know, but then they're saying, but I mean, you know, I, I, let me do whatever I can to help. But, uh, but it kind of just c- continues to turn things back to them. And you can almost watch again, if you start to bring things up about yourself or your family, your situation. And it's like, you almost just watch this. Uh, yeah, we're not here to do that. Here, let's, let's bring it back to me. Um, Malignant narcissists, these are these are kind of, this is where we get a little bit, uh, these are a little bit scary. This is the also known as toxic narcissist. And these are the ones that are, I mean, so again, look back at that real quick. So we got the classic narcissist is basically the person who's just, they're amazing. And they don't understand why anybody would want to talk about anyone other than them because they are so amazing. Uh, then you got the vulnerable narcissist. And that's the one who is, they don't really want the spotlight put on them. Um, but they still have this uh, desire to manipulate, to seek pity or ingratiate through excessive generosity. But again, the goal is just this, this uh, they want their admiration. The admiration is what they need to boost their sense of self-worth. Then the malignant narcissist, also known as the toxic narcissist, are highly manipulative and exploitative. These narcissists have many antisocial traits that are not present in the other two major subtypes, and they are often compared with sociopaths and psychopaths. So they often have a sadistic streak that makes them different from the other two major types, and their primary goal is to dominate and control they'll use legitimate deceit and aggression to accomplish it, and they lack remorse for their actions and they might even enjoy the suffering of others so that a malignant narcissist is when things um, kind of get uh, they go south and and I do you know th- this is why I thought this would be important as well. I mean I get to see all three of these, and especially in relationships. You know the uh, classic narcissist, the vulnerable narcissist; those can be maddening. But the malignant narcissist can just damage one's self worth and uh, and have one just feeling just just like they don't even want to be around at times. And so that's the part again that just truly breaks my heart. So um, if they if you feel like you're in a relationship with someone, their primary goal is to dominate and control. That they use deceit, aggression. Uh, they 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 lack complete remorse. And then sometimes you hear them even talk about enjoying the suffering of others. Um, you know that's one of those where this uh, uh, Kristen Milstead um, and and I agree says you know that's the one where you really need to go seek help and maybe it's not help in the I need to go to couples therapy but what do you do what can you do to manage your um, emotional baseline and set up boundaries and those kind of relationships so let's talk about the subtypes really quick we've got overt versus covert I think this one's uh, pretty easy to kind of um, point out or see in relationships. Uh, this subtype describes whether the narcissist uses methods to get his or her needs met that are more out in the open, or whether those methods are more stealth and secretive. For example, both overt and covert narcissists may put people down, they might boast or look for opportunities to take advantage of people, but overt narcissists do it in an unmistakable and noticeable ways. Covert narcissists work behind the scenes, or they're more passive-aggressive. So, others may come away not knowing that they were manipulated, or the narcissist tactics may allow him or her to deny what happened. So, I, I find that the the overt uh, the covert narcissist... Um, Often, you know, my joke is always like, wait a minute, I just got done talking to this person. Why do I feel like I need to go take a shower? Or where's my wallet? You know, and and where it's somebody that's just manipulated. I, I remember hearing someone tell me one time that every time a neighbor of theirs had called, they were like, okay, I, I cannot, you know, I have to hold my boundaries because by the end of that conversation, they were now, they had committed to doing something that they didn't want to do. And so, you know, in a covert narcissist is is still just equally as manipulative, but they're going to go about it just in the, man, you know, I wish I had time to do this sort of, sort of thing. And, and what are you up to today? What What's your plans? What do you got going on? Oh man, that so, it sounds like you do have some time. Huh? I mean, I know you're busy. I mean, I know that's going, but gosh, this is just so important. I really wish. And it's just this, this, you know this uh, this covert uh, manipulation that is going on and so before you know it oftentimes people um and and here's the thing that's been really fascinating i just got to put it out there from a context of time frame 2 or 3 weeks ago when i interviewed nikki eisenhower about highly sensitive person hsp and i've gotten so much feedback from that it's just been uh, just amazing but there's a there's a real link to uh hsp's and being in relationships with narcissists and if you do a lot of digging, it's really this, a lot of them are this type of covert narcissism. So if you got someone that just cares, they, they care in their bones and they have a lot of empathy uh, to the point where they almost feel like they're an empath, where they almost feel like they take on other people's empathy around them and you match them up with a covert narcissist, it is just a powder keg of, of the covert narcissist getting their way through manipulation and the HSP person, the highly sensitive person. Coming away from that, just feeling like, man, you know, I I have to help this person because I can't just set the boundary and say I don't care because they do. So that's uh, that one's a pretty tough one to watch Um, a covert narcissist and someone uh, who maybe has a little bit more of those HSP tendencies work together. So, subtype two is somatic versus cerebral. So, somatic, remember, means of the body. So this subtype defines what the narcissist primarily values in himself or herself and in others. So neither subtype wants to be outshined by their partner, but they do want someone around who enhances their status because to them, their partners are objects that they can show off as to say, look what I just obtained for my collection. So somatic narcissists are typically obsessed with their bodies and their youth and external appearance and spending a lot of time at the gym and in front of mirrors, and they want their partner to be the same. And then cerebral narcissists are the know-it-alls, and they think of themselves as the most intelligent ones in the room, the most incredible ones in the room. They know they know more. Um, they try to impress people with their accomplishments, their positions of power. And any of these three types of narcissists, classic, vulnerable, or malignant, can be either one of these two subtypes. Uh, type three, subtype three, this one's interesting. It's called inverted, inverted narcissism. Some researchers have identified this as a special type of covert, vulnerable narcissist called an inverted narcissist. And these narcissists, and here's what's interesting. They are thought to be codependent. So here's a narcissist that seeks to attach themselves to other narcissists to feel special, and they're only satisfied or happy, um, when they do continue in some sort of relationship with other narcissists, whether through work relationships. Um, oftentimes I don't find in, in marriage relationships though. So, uh, but they are victim narcissists who, and, and, you know, uh, Michelle or, uh, Kristen Milstead said, that they are victim narcissists who suffer from childhood abandonment issues. So a lot of times if you go again, do a little more deep dives on inverted narcissism, the subtype three, and you'll find that some of these childhood abandonment issues kind of left the person with these kind of attachment wounds, yet they were maybe raised by one or two narcissistic parents. And so that was the, they had this, uh, they never made that um, uh, self-centered to self-confident jump. And in the same breath, they still had this kind of codependent or attachment need. So that kind of sets the table for a little bit of their own dustings of narcissism while also kind of seeking this codependent relationship. So um, because that term narcissism is used so frequently and in such an arbitrary way, uh, Kristen says that it has become difficult to tell when it should be taken seriously or even what group the people that the term is being applied to. And so and and even though she says all narcissists can potentially be exploitative, not all narcissists are alike, and uh, one of them is is more dangerous than others, and that's a malignant narcissist. The malignant narcissist can be destructive and abusive because that's the one that seeks to dominate others um, for the most part has a lack of conscience. Uh, and they enjoy the damage they cause because interactions with them are likely to be harmful. So really learning how to distinguish between these types and how to understand which type is being discussed is crucial. So she goes on to say, and I will always say this, if you are being mistreated, exploited, or abused by anyone, however, it does not matter what type of narcissist they are, or even if they're a narcissist at all. If you again, feel like you are being emotionally abused, physically abused, exploited, or mistreated, um, Kristen uh, says run. And, uh, and I, I do agree, you know, find somebody that you can talk to, um, couples counseling is not always uh, necessarily the first step. If you feel like you are in an emotionally abusive relationship, um, a lot of times it's good to kind of go meet with somebody who can kind of hear what you are looking at, what you're dealing with. And uh, it might be a good idea to really set some boundaries in place and kind of work on some self-care to get yourself in a position to um, look at couples counseling. And uh, if you get yourself in a better position and learn boundaries, um, that's always a good first step. So I want to end today's uh, podcast with Kind of on this note, so a bit of a call to action. I would love to get your examples of times when maybe you have felt like you have been gaslit, almost from a, hey, is this normal standpoint? Because I, I can't lie, I've been collecting a lot of these kind of emails over the last probably year, year and a half since um, the narcissism episode and then since the gaslighting episode in particular, and I'm really kicking around the idea of uh, putting out a uh, just a shorter, um, second podcast where we just kind of go over some of these or maybe I make it a, a you know a special once a week episode of the virtual couch but where we kind of go over some of the examples of is this normal and not from a standpoint of where I want to be the judge and jury of normal conversation but let me just give you an example Here's one that I recently received an email from a listener who just said, hey is this normal um, they had they had prefaced it by saying they heard the gaslighting episode and they were very very complimentary and and, and nice about the podcast and said that they They just have always kind of felt crazy. So um, she said uh, she shared an example of a time where she was at a theme park and she was walking around with small children. And one of them was thirsty. And she said that, uh, she said, hey, we need to stop and get water. And her husband said that, hey, it's not time to get a drink right now. And so he just keeps plowing ahead. Then uh, the mom is now trying to pacify the child. And the child continues to get thirsty. Then the others start to get thirsty. Now the husband's getting angrier and saying, you guys should have had drinks before we left. And then at this point, the mom said, now she realizes she's thirsty, but she says, I'm not about to bring it up because I don't want to get yelled at too. And I, it just breaks my heart because, you know, she just said, is this normal? Because she's like, eventually, when he was thirsty, then it was time to stop and get a drink. And then she said that this thing happens all the time, whether it's with bathrooms or drinks. And then she goes on to say, as, as most do, you know, he it, but but it, other times he's great and he was good with the kids and he bought us stuff. And, you know, but is that normal? And that's the part where, I you know, it I want to have so much empathy and just I'm so sorry that that's what you're going through. But then I want to say, you know, normal is when someone is thirsty, you stop and get a drink or when somebody has to go to the bathroom, you stop and go to the bathroom. And these are these kind of crazy stories I hear as a therapist where I have kids that just talk about horror stories of and, and even spouses who didn't want to go on long trips in the car because dad won't stop for bathroom breaks. Dad stops at a bathroom break when dad needs to go to the bathroom and kids are sitting there with their you know legs and bladders twisted up like a pretzel and not wanting to say a word. And and this, these are those small things that I just used to pride myself on as a father. And maybe it was because, truthfully, I was cursed with a small bladder, and I'm grateful for that. But, you know, stop. I don't care if we have to stop 10 times if we're driving, uh, you know, across Nevada to go to the bathroom. Why not? Stop. Smell the air. Uh, You know, if there's not stops, it's okay. Okay. Um, get the one as soon as you can, but take bathroom breaks whenever somebody has to go to the bathroom. That's normal. I mean, we, we want our kids and our spouse to think that we've got a relationship that is, they can come to us and say, I have to go to the bathroom. I mean, if we expect our kids or our spouse to come to us and talk about, you know, where am I going to college or what am I going to do for a living? Or, you know, should, where should, is it time to buy a new house? And we feel like we can't even go to them and talk about, I got to go to the bathroom then no, that's not normal. Um, another one that I that I got that while I'm on this note is uh, and I hear this one often, I just got another one not recently, not recently, not long ago, where I'm working with a couple, they're fairly new. And I'm talking just about communication. And when do they communicate? And, uh, and I'm telling you, I boy, I feel like I'm picking on guys. But uh, this one's pretty heavily on the male side, where the guy will say, well, you know, I try to come home and talk to her. Um, but I, I go to tell her story at work, and she just interrupts me all the time, like with a ton of questions. So, and he's basically looking at me. This is the non-EFT version, so this is where somebody's fairly new at counseling, and I feel like the guys will look over at me and say, "You know, hey, can you help a brother out? Like, can you tell her she just needs to be quiet till I'm done with my story?" And this is where I oh, you know, I've been doing this too long now, where I just want to erupt. But I you know, I sit calmly and I just uh, kind of ask what that experience is like for the wife, and the experience is like, well, I don't even want to talk to him because. What if I have a question to ask? And now I'm thinking in my mind of, okay, I'm lost. I'm confused. I don't even know where the story's going, but I'm not about to bring anything up. So then I just have to sit there and nod and heaven forbid he's going to ask me a question because I'm not going to know it because I'm afraid of him. So so that's, you know, no, that's not normal. So um, I can understand why that would be frustrating as a guy if somebody was going to, if, you know, your wife is like interrupting you. But I think this is one of those things where you take a a paradigm shift. You know, the, we got to change the whole mindset, the dynamics of the relationship to be, Um, Hey, I want this connection with my wife. So I will say to my wife often, and I was not perfect about this early in my marriage. I will be so honest with this because sometimes I worry that residual damage is still there. But it's like, okay. Um, I will now say to her, I narrate as I like to call it, uh, all right, hey, I'm going to I'm going into story mode and, and I want you to just ask questions. Any question you want, you just interrupt me at any time. The floor is now open for questions um, to the point where she'll kind of laugh about that. And so, so if I start, if I barely even start, you know, all right, so Steve said, and, and I don't want her to be like, now who's Steve? I want her to ask, now, now tell me who Steve is. And then if we have to now spend five minutes breaking down who Steve is and who Steve's wife is and what Steve did the one time that we did the one thing, That's okay because my goal is to have a a relationship with my wife, not to see how many stories I can get through in the span of one year um, by evidence by tally marks on um, my family calendar. So again, our goal is relationships. So hey, took a little bit of a switch there from narcissism to relationships. But I want your examples of if there are these kind of these gaslighting techniques um, that, that you feel like are these these arguments or conversations that come up often that you feel aren't productive. And let me answer them. And let me and I'm gonna try to do it in a very productive way. That's why I'm thinking about the second podcast, because I don't want the name of the podcast to be your narcissistic husband says, you know, dot dot dot. But I want it, I want it to be something about you know, here's productive communication, or I don't know, I've got some ideas. Um, I've had a couple people that I've thrown this out that have sent me some really good ideas for names. But I think it would be nice to kind of say, uh, I would love for it to be a, uh, uh, you know, you send me something in, I change the names and dates and and uh, places a little bit. And uh, we read it and then kind of I frame it in an EFT setting. And then, you know, you get to say, hey, honey, uh, I just heard this new podcast. Listen to this, the way that the, the, this person solved this uh, argument. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and maybe hopefully that'll be something that can help. So, Hey, I didn't mean this one to go this long, but thanks for hanging in there. If you get a chance, um, go check out this article by Kristen Milstead. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. And if again, if you're in any kind of, uh, abusive, emotionally abusive, physical abusive relationship, um, get help, get out, get help. Um, the last thing you want to do is start to feel like that you are the one that's going crazy. That is not normal. You, you need to uh, understand that, um, that uh, you want to be in a relationship where you're valued and loved and trusted. And, uh, and there are ways to have that type of relationship. So don't feel like you have to settle for something other than that. All right. Until next time, I'll see you on the virtual couch. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind. Wasting rubber, ghost. I'm floating past the midnight hour. They push aside.